Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 16, and it's about De Kaap and the peninsula in the 1660s. As we've heard, the trading with the Khoi at the Cape was not going as well as the Dutch hoped, and Jan van Riebeek, the fort commander, had decided to lay out his formal frontier, albeit a tiny start to what would become a major immigration. And it would start with a tree called the Bitter Almond, which, considering what was to happen to the Khoi over the next century, is a pretty accurate name. But first, some domestic news. Remember, Van Rubeck had arrived in 1652 with his whole family. His wife, Maria della Caleri, was a relatively strong person of 22 when she landed on the shores of Table Bay as one of the six European women joining the 80-odd men. The other five were all married to various officials living at the fort. Maria and Jan had arrived with a child of their own, as well as two orphaned nieces. Maria was sickly and pregnant almost every year while at the Cape having one miscarriage after another. The Fenrubiks had arrived with a son and two adopted daughters, but their attempt at having a fourth child appeared to be doomed. Living with the Fenrubiks was a really interesting coy woman called Kratoa. As Patrick Mellett points out in his work The Lie of 1652, Kratoa was a key figure in the struggle between the Khoi and the Dutch. From various descriptions, Kratoa is likely to have been fathered by a European traveller with her Khoi mother, leaving Kratoa's upbringing to her brother, Uchumau. Basically, her mother disowned her, it appears, but that didn't stop the youngster from developing into quite a force at the Dutch fort. She was exposed to many languages as her uncle, a Khoi man, was the portmaster for the Dutch. Van Riebeck took Kratoa from her uncle into his service as a maid when she was 10, and she carried out the demanding role of both nurse to sick Maria and her children. So Kratoa spent 10 years with the Van Riebeck family, learning Dutch and Portuguese, and for six of those years, she was the VOC interpreter, emissary, and diplomat. The Dutch called her Eva, and we met her last episode. At first, Van Riebeck was charmed by her capacity as a linguist, but soon began to distrust what she was saying, believing she was misleading him, and said that Kratoa was, in his words, drawing the longbow in her interpretations. That was Dutch slang for disinformation. By now, the local Khoi, who made a living directly from the fort and the new Freeburgers, were based in the area called Kamisa, inside the Bitter Almond Hedge. Kratoa began to build a relationship between herself and her sister, who had married the powerful Kotoa chief, Odosia. So Kratoa was caught in a vortex of social and economic change and was obviously wrestling with her place in life. Her relationship with the other main interpreter, Doman, was not good, and Van Riebeck purposefully set up conflict at times to ensure that between the two of them, he received relatively accurate information as they competed in tittle-tattling. As she entered puberty, Kratoa was surrounded by 140 roughneck men, which included some from Ambon in the east and where protection was difficult to ensure. Between the ages of 12 and 15, she absorbed the religion and the culture of the Dutch. I've not fully explained yet that the role of women in Khoi society was far more egalitarian than has been described. We know it was common for women to be leaders of Khoi groups which gave Kratoa a great advantage compared to the position held by Dutch women in the 17th century. By the time Van Riebeck departed with his family in 1662, VOC leaders were wary of Kratoa. Her role in the first Khoi-Dutch war, which we've just heard about, was contradictory. At times, she travelled to speak to her sister living amongst the Kratoa. At others, she acted as an intermediary with the Goringhatwa. In many ways, Eva, or Kratoa as we'll call her, 
was torn between her African culture and her European culture. There was a tug of war going on. She would wear both the attire of an Asian maid, a robe basically, and at other times she would strip off the robe and walk about in her coy, tiny leather skirt, bare-breasted. She was also in a tug-of-war between two different koi groups, the Trotrotroi and the Gonghatroi. Some days she would journey amongst the Trotrotroi, riding one of the prized bulls treated like the daughter of a leader. Other days she would travel with European men who treated her as a slave and, we believe, as a concubine. By her late teens she had given birth to two daughters at the fort fathered by these men. Between 1656 and 1661, Krotoa blossomed and began to deal more effectively with the other translator, Doman, who led the first Khoi uprising. As Van Riebeck's tenure at the Cape drew to a close, Krotoa had managed to personally assure the delivery of cattle by the Trotrotroi, setting up high-level meetings between Van Riebeck and the important Khoi group. She also argued in their favour at discussions. Clearly her strategy was to try to be effective for both groups, but she was walking a tightrope. Things changed for her in 1662 when van Riebeck left the Cape. Krotoa then married the Danish soldier and surgeon Peter Hafgaard. Because of the custom enforced by the Dutch East India Company, the VOC, Hafgaard adopted the Dutch persona of Peter van Meerhof. He was both barber and amputator. Such was the life of a surgeon back in 1662. He was also a profligate adventurer and decided to head off on a slave-raiding expedition to Madagascar where he was killed, but not before Krotoa was pregnant with their child. By this time, she was living on Robben Island, not as a prisoner, but as the wife of the Dutch-Danish surgeon. Krotoa had a breakdown after Meerhof died. Her children were taken away and placed in the care of the church. Two of her four children, Pietronella and Solomon, ended up living with a brothel keeper, called Barbara Gims. Her one illegitimate son, Anthony Evert, was looked after by a freed slave couple from West Africa, Anna and Evert van Guinea, while nothing is known about what happened to her fourth child, a son called Geronimus. Pietanella and Solomon were taken to Mauritius after the brothel keeper Barbara Gims passed them on to Bartholomus Borns and his wife. We'll return to what happened to Kratoa in a later podcast, but as we embark on the series, at times we'll hear intimate personal tales of the people of South Africa. So in the decades after the first Khoi-Dutch war, the VOC's frontier of trade expanded much more rapidly than their agrarian settlement. The rate at which freeburgers increased their farms outside of the dedicated areas on the peninsula was still controlled tightly by the company and the local colonial government. The company's impact on the Khoi-Khoi was gradual and cumulative rather than cataclysmic, like the impact on Kratoa, if you like. But a turning point was coming in the 1670s, as we'll hear. Khoi leaders who had spent the first decade with the Dutch began to die of old age, such as Gogosha, which further weakened the position of the Khoi. Another major change was taking place. The Khoi sold more and more of their precious cattle to the Dutch in exchange for alcohol, tobacco and copper. Those closest to the colony began to turn from independent pastoralists into cattleless labourers. Then there were the bouts of deadly disease, including smallpox, which swept across the peninsula at times. The pattern of Dutch Khoi relations in the next 50 years to 1700 can be summed up by the fate of the Tranutra people, for example. They lived mainly in the region between the Hottentots Hollands Mountains and modern Swellendam, and were led by a man named Suswa. He ruled 16 settlements in the region in the 1660s, but it's not possible to say just how large they were. We don't have enough data on that. He had a close alliance with the people further east called the Hesetwa, a far larger and more powerful Khoi group. 
These two groups were involved in an ancient and constant feud with the Tlotlotwa, a traditional rivalry where no one could say why they fought, it had just always been that way. This did not bode well for their survival in the coming colonial encroachment. Both the Tlotlotwa and Hesekwa, along with the Tlanutwa, tried to entice the Dutch into supporting their various internal wars, with virtually no success. The VOC commanders at the Cape did not have to indulge much in the divide and rule logic because the indigenous peoples of the Cape were already divided. When the Second Khoi Dutch War began in the early 1670s, this conflict would ultimately weaken all Khoi peoples. And this set the scene for settler and African political and social interaction for the next 400 years. One of the inherited myths brought into the Cape by the Europeans was the mental baggage of Calvinism. It encouraged the belief that there was a predetermined division of souls into the damned and the elect, a basic dichotomy which revolved around being a Christian or a heathen, the civilized and the savage. Of course, this was happening across the globe during the age of European expansion. Holland's rise as the most powerful nation on earth created a distinct narrative fostered further by the remarkable ability the Dutch had in reclaiming land from the sea using dikes and canals. To be Dutch was to create a strong barrier between yourself and things outside yourself which could threaten your identity or your life. A distinct failure to integrate with Africans was the result, perfected later by the English who sought to create a strong barrier between themselves and the Dutch descendants, the Afrikaners, let alone the Africans. Strict religious observances were enforced by the Dutch. Prosperity, order and cleanliness were marks of the civilized. Holland was the wealthiest state on earth in the late 17th century because citizens believed this course had been chosen by God. A rich man was a good man. As these myths arrived in South Africa, thanks to the VOC, the act of export meant they transformed. The colonists began to act on specific values imported from Europe while allowing others to fade. The VOC officials at the Cape strove to create an ideal form of Dutch society in a strange setting, while the more marginal, the free burghers if you like, sought to liberate themselves from the social stratification and conventions that had disadvantaged them back in Europe. Poor soldiers from Amsterdam could become rich landowners in South Africa, and as they did so, they sought to remain insulated from the local Africans. That was the public stated intent. However, Human sexual and social relationships on frontiers have a much more private reality. So the frontier at this stage between the Dutch and Khoi was the site of a constant battle between different versions of what constituted a Dutch identity and a Khoi identity, and in the ensuing struggle new myths would emerge. Monitoring these is going to be interesting for those willing to undertake the mental exercise. Nothing makes the present more prescient than understanding exactly how we got here, warts and all. So. The embryonic government in the Cape began with three classes of people. The company's servants, the San and the Khoi. The servants, of course, were mainly soldiers and some sailors and the freeburgers, as well as the slaves who arrived from West Africa and Angola initially, then Madagascar and finally from the Far East. At the end of the first decade of VOC rule in the Cape, a large group of mixed-race people began to emerge. But the number of Europeans there was pretty minuscule. By 1660, for example, there were only 16 non-VOC employees in the small town of De Carp. Ten mechanics, one grocer, one baker, and four canteen keepers. Everyone wanted to be a canteen keeper because beer was well loved by the soldiers of the fort, so van Riebeck limited the number of licenses to nine. The first fully qualified priest would only arrive in the Cape in 1665, 
a man by the name of Johann van Arkel, who built a wooden church. That was also the year that a war broke out between the English and the Dutch, and the earth-walled fort needed a design upgrade. This led to the stone-based castle, which can be found in Cape Town today. The design copied French Emperor Louis XIV's great military engineer, Vauban. The new commander, who replaced van Driebeck in 1662, was Wagner, and he laid the first stone. Convicts and slaves were sent to collect timber at Haute Bay, which means Wood Bay, and shells for lime from Robben Island. Work slowed on the castle after the Peace of Breda was signed between the English and the Dutch. Then building began again in 1672 when Louis of France attacked the United Provinces of the Netherlands and work was hastily resumed. The castle would only be completed in 1674. Meanwhile, knowledge of what lay beyond the confines of the colony began to increase. The valleys of the Grote and Klein Berg rivers were thoroughly explored. Riebeck's Castile and Vierentwintig rivers named and the land of Tulbach entered. Others travelled eastward to the lands of the Hesetkwa as far as Mussel Bay. By 1668, the Dutch had travelled to where George and Nasner is today. They also expanded their cattle runs and stations at Sultana Bay and Fisuk on the far side of False Bay. And by 1679, company cattle and sheep were grazing at the Tigerberg, Esterafir and into the Hottentots Hollands mountains. At each point, there were soldiers stationed to keep an eye out for both San and Koi, and to keep an eye on the Freeburgers themselves, who were now growing a strong independent streak. The one industry upon which these Freeburgers wished to embark was cattle and sheep rearing, and that was the one industry on which their lords and masters working for the VOC were determined they should not. Between 1658 and 1680, there were 16 different placards or legal documents banning specific forms of trade with the Khoi, and each was systematically ignored by the free burgers. After all, who was going to enforce these laws when the burgers were starting to spread out across the flats, then over the Hottentot Hollands Mountains into what is now the Eastern Cape, along with northward expansion towards Ceres? The law fettered these men, and they sought freedom. There was another law which the free burgers wanted annulled, and it involved action against the Khoi. Because the VOC was so vastly outnumbered, the rule was strict. No koi may be killed by a freeburger or VOC official. As Willem Willems found to his cost after he killed a koi man accused of theft. Willems was first banished to Robben Island, but the koi complained, and he was eventually sent to the penal settlement in Mauritius. After van Riebeck sailed to the Far East in 1662 with his extended family, the new commander Wagner reminded the colonists that no koi may be struck nor punished. The VOC would control discipline. Now, of course, the Freeburgers ignored this edict, as we'll hear over the course of our series. The VOC was not supposed to involve itself in the local koi disputes, but Wagner himself seemed to ignore this law by handing out brass-headed staffs to selected chiefs as a recognition of their chiefdom. Class of the Tranutra received one, for example, and he immediately began to escalate cattle rustling against the Trotrotra. This would lead to the Second Khoi-Dutch War later. The Khoi also began to kill Freeburgers, and these murders escalated as the Freeburgers increased their exploration of the hinterland. In the decades after the First Khoi-Dutch War, the company's frontier of trade expanded much more rapidly than the agrarian settlement, which remained very much under the supervision of the colonial government. Everything began to change significantly in the mid-1670s when the VOC's determination to recognize Khoi Khoi independence waned and it began to impinge on Khoi sovereignty in many ways. 
This included military, diplomatic, economic and judicial decisions which were not entirely coincidental. It was also during this period that the Dutch realised that they could easily bend Koiko to their wills if necessary. In Van Riebeek's day, the tribes had been perceived as a threat to the colony's existence, but by the early 1670s, the increasing number of Europeans and a series of defensive measures had given the colony a new sense of security. The watchhouses, blockhouses, mounted patrols and famous bitter armoured hedge had worked. Their firearms also gave even isolated European farmers an extremely effective defence against Khoikhoi and San attack, made more effective by the fractured nature of Khoikhoi power. So inevitably, VOC commanders and the directors back in Holland began to lose interest in the Khoi. The Cape government by the mid-1670s was no longer expected to send long reports on the colony's relations with the Khoikhoi, and the Heron 17 were rarely moved to comment on the actions of Cape officials in turn. What happened in this period is that the Cape government became far bolder in dealing with the Khoi, a tendency which was to be exaggerated by probably the real founding father of colonial South Africa, Simon van der Stel, after 1679. But before he arrived, there was one more dramatic display by the company of its military capacity when the Second Khoi-Dutch War broke out in 1673, affecting the Khoi-Khoi of the southwestern Cape the most. The Tlotlotla chiefs, Konoma and Odisha, were to feel the wrath after a number of incidents of banditry and murder targeting Freeburgers, although there is some dispute about the details. Such is the way of history. And that's for next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. You can send me comments through the website desmondlatham.blog as well as direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.